Hello, and welcome to Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. Hello. Hello. (laughs) My voice feels really scratchy this morning for some reason. Uh, Is it because you're drinking McDonald's coffee? Well, I drank McDonald's coffee, and now I'm drinking uh, water. Oh, okay. Um, Not to brag. That's uh, yeah, that's cool. Mm, but um, I don't know. It's just uh, I didn't get enough sleep last night or something like that. That happens. That happens. Um, so Hillary, um, we're here. We're doing this podcast. Oh yeah. On um, Red Ken, Mars. Red Mars. Ken Stanley Robinson's first novel in the Mars trilogy. The first novel in the Mars trilogy. Yep. And what we're doing is we're going part by part mm-hmm. and discussing it. Right. Having a great old time. Right. Like friends do. As friends do. Mm-hmm. It's a read-along podcast. Read-along for the people who are listening to us. <laughs> it's a real long <laughs> read-along. It's a real long podcast. Real long read-along podcast. But that's good. It's kind of, isn't that, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but isn't that what you want in a podcast? You real long? It, yeah. To oh, be long. Yeah. Right? Because they're all about like this sort of sustained kind of like quasi-companionship yeah. with you know, these kind of muttering voices in your ear. Yeah. I remember when I first started listening to podcasts and every episode was like an hour and you're like, okay, this is fun. But then like every once in a while, an hour and a half long podcast would come out of that, (laughs) of that show that you liked. And you're like, yes, more. I want like two hours, three hours. Now I understand actually why people listen to like Howard Stern every day for like four hours at a time. It's because it's familiarity and it fills that like, uh, you know, soul shaped hole in all of our bodies. The soul hole. The soul hole. So that's what we're here for, to entertain, delight, and fill in your constitutive lack. Yeah. Um, Oh, I was going to say, did you read, there was in In These Times, a great uh, publication (laughs) uh, this week, whatever week it is when we're posting this, it was uh, probably a few weeks ago that this came out. There was an interview with Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah, there was an interview with Kim Stanley Robinson in In These Times. Um, Did you read it? I did read it. Did you read it? I did. It was good. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was good. The best part was when the, the interviewer is like, well, what do you think about, like, billionaires going to Mars? And, and like, Robinson says something, and then he says, but the real question is, why are there so many billionaires? Yeah, right. <laughs> or well, why do billionaires exist? That's the cool thing about <laughs> Robinson is that he uh, – like, the interviewer I don't think was that great – but Robinson can like twist the interview back into back around to what is really truly important, which which is socialism. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like right. destroying capitalism. Right. Well, and he's so like every time I read an interview with him, I'm struck by like he's incredibly clear. I yeah. mean, and he may, you know like he has a series of points that like really matter to him, and he makes those points, and they're about like you know it is possible to have socialism, and they're about the importance of scientific research, and they're about the idea that like we need to make sure that um, scientific research is supported because that is you know one of the things that must happen in order to make sure that we don't um, fully destroy the planet that we've already mostly destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I was just thinking, like, it's interesting that he's so, he's very clear in those interviews, um, but his novels, and I think people often read his novels as though they were just, like, longer and kind of drawn-out illustrations of those clear points, but while I feel like he is always, he is, his novels always do revolve around those points, the novels are actually really complicated in the way that they think, mm-hmm. and I think that they produce, like, a lot of ambiguity and a lot of, like, different interpretive possibilities and Mm -hmm. even like rereading red mars so far Mm -hmm. um you know my memories of it are both like very kind of from reading it the first time which is like a decade ago my memories of the novels are both sort of you know those kind of like mostly affective novel reading memories Mm -hmm. where like i just like have this kind of sense of the places in the book and these feelings that it you know gave me um, but also, like, I, I think of it as, like, making arguments or something. And rereading yeah. it now, I'm like, it's full of arguments, but it's not a book that's making an argument. Right. The book, the book is really great about the way that it leaves so much open-ended and, like, you can really um, identify with a plethora of character. A plethora. A plethora. Uh, many characters, but also, like, really inhabit their, their, posi- their intellectual yeah. positions yeah. without it ever really full-on making a declaration, Mm -hmm. right, about what it believes. Mm -hmm. Other than in the most broadest terms, like uh, I think in the interview too, he does sort of 
maybe he alludes to this or maybe we were just talking about it last week where he does believe that like colonizing Mars and terraforming would be a good thing, right? Like um, that that would be worth doing. He's not in the Anne camp himself. Right, Robinson. right, right. Um, Although he has a nice corrective in that interview to calling it colonizing. Right. right? You know, like, Actually, really good. That's a settlement because colonizing, there's nobody there. So right. it would be settling Mars. But he also, like in the interview as well, says we're not going to do that anytime soon at all right. because it's just mm-hmm. too, like, let the billionaires go play and it's going to be silly. Like, it's not going to work, basically. Right. Um, it's not, right. And it's not what we need right now. Right. And, and also he's very clear in that interview that, like, that thinking that would be about a research project. Yeah. It would be about learning things. It would be yeah. about coming to understand more about like, um, you know, what a planet is. Right? Yeah. Um, but it would not be about producing, you know, there's, you know, whatever, no planet B, right. There's right. right. It would not be about producing another home for right. humans. Right. Um, I mean, and I do, you know, which it, and that actually is a good link into mm. the chapter that we're talking about today. Unplanned, but good, <laughs> because the chapter is called Homesick. Homesick. Oh, you want to say it at the same time? <laughs> homesick. We, it's called Homesick. Homesick. And, I mean, and the chapter is so much about, like, I mean, in the last chapter also we talked about this. I mean, I think in the last chapter you get very taken up in the terraforming debate and trying to think about the strangeness of this alien world. What does it mean to be there? Like, is there a way to live on it that Mm -hmm. is not just default thinking it's an analogy to earth and therefore you can make it earth like, you know? Um, but in the last chapter too, we do get some thoughts about like what it means to make a, the specific thing about making a home someplace. Like when Arcadi is like, you know, why is everything so ugly? Exactly. Why don't we make it beautiful? We can make it beautiful, make it beautiful. (laughs) And this, and this will change the way in which we live, you know, or like, we should have like a you know a, a sauna and like a swimming pool because like our dolphin brains need you right. know like that's part of the kind of home that humans need right right they come from a watery We're home water, yeah um and then we get that again in this chapter or like sort of in more kind of in more depth but also in like some pretty like weird ways we get the idea of home raised mm-hmm. here yeah Michelle the the this chapter is told from the point of view of Michelle. Um, the, the psychologist, the only Frenchman on Mars, <laughs> he's the loneliest <laughs> Frenchman on Mars. And, um, mm. uh, so, and he's very used to a Mediterranean climate. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so he whines and complains a lot about how cold it is and, yeah. and he's so lonely cause no one speaks French worth a damn. Right. He says, uh, at one point he says, Frank's French is worse than no French at all. <laughs> it's like he takes a hatchet to the language or something. Um, but he's also like the only psychologist, psychoanalyst, right. psychiatrist, whatever, right. among 99 insane people. Right. Like who he's, cl- he's clearly not a psychoanalyst, I'll say, based on his What is he then? I mean, does what's he, his, does he have a school? Is he a Freudian, a Winnicottian? Is he a Kleinian? Uh, no, I don't, I really don't think he is, I don't think he's an analyst at all. I think, I mean, I think he is described as a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, oh, wait. So way back on 26, 27, mm. what do they describe him as? We'll cut this out. Uh, <laughs> edit out the part where we flip through the books they're really long even when you've posted uh, notes it can be hard to find things Michelle psychiatrist psychiatrist says some of them were aware of this and naturally they took care to include among the colonists the most qualified psychiatrist they could think of. So they sent Michelle Duval. Right, right, right. So he doesn't – I mean like I would say that the way in which he thinks about um, like – the way in which he seems to think about people – I mean he thinks about people in some like very contradictory ways. But when he's kind of like wearing his, his – when he's doing his psychiatrist thing in the chapter, mm-hmm. it's all about like – these kind of personality types and right. here sort of like derived here. He, the claim is that the personality types are linked up to certain like neurological, mm-hmm. you know, biological neurological features. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, which is why I don't think he's a psychoanalyst, which is not, you right. know, like, which is not a kind of analysis that thinks about, like, you know, you have to resolve people into, like, these personality types. But right. he, here he's, like, this, um, like, he both wants to, like, think about, like, the kind of the personality types that, that people inhabit. And there's, like, some things that feel, like, semi-persuasive about those descriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also is very intent on just making everybody into, like, both a cultural and a gender stereotype. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, you know, like, his reading of Maya is that she's just this, like, typical Russian woman Mm -hmm. the product of like this stupid russian social organization that couldn't overcome the dominance of women i mean he's like yeah yeah he's like a you know he's something of a misogynist i would say um yeah definitely and he also is like obviously a creep because as (laughs) as as maya's (laughs) psychiatrist he's like sexually obsessed with her he's like in love with her right um, and he and she's always coming to him with her problems between John and Frank, which like I can identify with him on that level because like give me a break, <laughs> shut up, <laughs> settle Mars, don't like, what are you worried about? Um, and also like he uh, there's this one moment where he says on like 209 he says at the top watching her Michelle almost said John wants you irritated with him, you know like. That it, there's this sense for me always that John and Frank are playing Maya off of each other, right, right. just toying with her basically, so that they can mm-hmm. maintain like a U.S. dominance of the planet in a way, like undercut the the Russian influence and like maintain like some kind of U.S. hegemony. Right. Um, right. That's never that never really plays out in the novel, but that's always in the back of my mind that because like John and Frank have, although their relationship is tense in other moments they do sort of seem to give each other looks and know uh, what what one wants the other to right, do at right. a given time. Right. Well, and it seems like I, two things that I was thinking about in this chapter, which, like, you know, this is more sort of speculative than, than there is evidence for. But, like, one, I mean, yeah, like, they have a – like, John and Frank have a homosocial relationship, mm-hmm. right, which is sealed by Maya as this kind of, like, item of exchange yeah, between right. them. But the other thing is that, like – um, I, I think there's a way in which, you know, so if the last section we got Nadia, mm-hmm. right. And Nadia is associated with work. Um, and in this chapter, Michelle says, you know, she's phlegmatic. Right. Um, and he thinks about her as like this good foil for Maya who is labile, right. you know, and she's all over the place. She's going to like change her mind all the time. But I was thinking about how like, um, one of the things you see about Nadia in that chapter is she's not just phlegmatic. Like, she doesn't just, like, you know, she's not, like, one of her tools. Mm-hmm. Like, she's also a, a person who responds in different ways and has passions and intensities and feels loss, mm-hmm. you know, among other things. But, like, you know, Maya is also, it's not just that she is, like, you know, dramatic and this, like, you know, the hyper-emotional Russian woman. Right. It, it's also that like she is doing a kind of emotional she does she takes on this kind of like yeah. emotional burden right yeah, I right. mean like somewhere in this system right. of you know a hundred people who are like living in a weird hothouse who are all despite the fact that you know like you know they're all incredibly intense like they're so intense mm-hmm. and like that I just think that like that has to like the energy of that has to go somewhere and there's a way in which she is doing a kind of affective labor by being she's like the performative. That's one, a really right? good point. You know? Yeah, I, I mean it's considered like, it that way. Like the drama queen does a kind right. of work for the other people around them, right? Yeah. Because the drama queen like you know puts Channels. it all on display right. and like lets other people go like oh I'm not like that or whatever. And I think that that for, that came out with to me in this chapter because Michelle's reading of Maya is like so sexist. Yeah. And, so objectifying, and you know, he actually says at some point she slept her way up through the cosmo- yeah. the cosmonaut hierarchy or whatever. Right. Which is kind of like fuck you, yeah, right? You know, like really, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, whatever stories she's told about her sexual past to him, like, doesn't equate with like she got where she is by you know using her sexuality. Right? It's a gross story. But then I was thinking, like, but she does something not only in the novel, like for the reader, but also like in the like. Um, um, within this, within the group in the novel too, by mm-hmm. like exercising all this emotional stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, I, that's a really good. That's a really good point. It's my, like, def- my defense of Maya. Yeah, she but. channels like the she channels the 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 anxieties and the energies of the yeah. of the group in yeah. a way that like then makes her appear 
weird or right. other or crazy. I mean, right. on 207, he literally, at the bit bottom, it literally said, Maya was crazy. Crazy in a Russian way, however, which meant she was a power to be reckoned with. Mother Russia, the church and the communists both had tried to eradicate the matriarchy that had preceded them, and all they had achieved was a flood of bitter, emasculating scorn, a whole nation full of contemptuous Rusalkas and Baba Yagas, and 20-hour-a-day 20, 20 superwomen living in a nearly parthenogenic <laughs> culture of mother... i got to get my dictionary. Culture of mothers, daughters, babushkas, granddaughters, yet still necessarily absorbed in their relationships with men, desperately trying to find the lost father, the perfect mate, or just a man who would pull his share of the load, finding that great love, and then more often than not destroying it. Crazy. Michelle's also, like, so <laughs> annoying because he, like, has so little... He's making all these judgments about other people, but he has very little self-awareness yeah. of, emo- of his own. Yeah. Uh, well, because he's, like, he... Um, yeah, he he is not... Right, because he sort of sees his... You know, he, he's a big cultural generalizer, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. And, you know, like... Who knows? Perhaps there's Classic some... Classic European racism, basically. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, like... Uh, right, he's into generalizing about women, although mostly I think it's about their attractiveness, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then he's into making these cultural generalizations, but he doesn't see his own... Like, he's in the... Throughout the chapter, he's longing for his... Um, Villefranche-sur-Mer, yeah, where right, he's from, yeah. right? And he's longing for the Mediterranean and the warmth and the beauty and I, you know, and I do think that you get a sort of, in the chapter, you do get that beauty evoked. I mean, you can kind of picture the Mediterranean as a way of like thinking about how odd it would be to be in a place that is like dry and, you know, kind of colored like the desert and and, deeply, deeply cold. I mean, like that's kind of like, that's crazy. I I feel like there's, I feel like you get that, you know, we can have a kind of sympathy for him, but he he also just like uh, he's he's like a categorizer. Like mm-hmm. he wants to be able to categorize people, and he doesn't. I agree. He doesn't like see his own. He can see that he's having this homesickness problem, but he doesn't see that as like a cultural problem in the way that he sees that Maya has a cultural problem. Yeah. Right. right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just before we get too deep into the chapter, which is the shortest chapter in the book, I think. Um, it's only like 30 pages. The, but the beginning part in italics, mm. uh, I mentioned this before we started, is curious because it's very unclear from whose voice it is. Yeah, yeah. And this is something Robinson does throughout the trilogy is that sometimes it'll be clear that it's from somebody's voice or the clarity will come afterwards. And sometimes it'll be sort of almost from the voice of Mars itself mm-hmm. or some mm-hmm. kind of um, sort of it, 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 some, I guess sometimes you can qualify it, like uh, categorize it as a kind of um, omnip- omnipot- omniscient observer or something. Right, right. But um, this one's really curious because it's sort of, it's like both poetic, but then deeply scientific. Yeah. It's about how, um, where life comes from and how life adapts and what life is. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know that I want to read any of it out loud, but it's just I, I wonder what you what your take on this was and and what what its connection is to the to the chapter as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a great. I I think that is a really interesting question, and i i have a um, I have a couple of thoughts about it, but they're just sort of preliminary. I mean, so we just so one thing it does is because it's about the lichens starting to grow mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, so we just ended the last section with lear- with realizing that, like, despite the fact that the decision had not been made, right? Um, on those little um, windmills, they were also releasing bioengineered um, organisms mm-hmm. to start trying to grow. So we're both, so we're like, we get a new picture of Mars here. We've just gotten a picture of Mars in the last chapter, and we've and suddenly already. Right, we get a new picture of Mars because there's something new on it, yeah. and that's this like growing, uh, uh, growing stuff, right? And we get an account of that in these kind of um, uh, evolutionary terms that also give us some sense of um, what it means to make a genetically modified organism and how that um, how that happens. So we get some technology as well as some like sort of scientific mm-hmm. account. Um, 
so so it's like we have the last chapter ends with us knowing this is going to happen, mm-hmm. and then this one begins with this section. Which, as you were just pointing out, like, we don't know whose point of view this is from. Like, is this an omniscient narrator? Um, Is this a retrospective description? Could this even just be, like, another thing like the John Boone speech that opens the very first chapter, Mm -hmm. right? You know, like, is this an interested description or is this an impartial description? But it it gives us a description of, like, okay, the thing that we saw as in potential in the last chapter has actually started happening, and it, it's life. Life is happening. Yeah, in a certain way, it does read as if, you know, it, you know, you, flashing back to the first moment of the book where it turns out it was John Boone giving a speech, it does feel like a charismatic science lecture in a college or something like mm-hmm. that, right? But no one in the book fits that bill, really. Yeah, um, right, right. Would talk this way, necessarily, right. except for maybe John Boone, but we know it's not him talking. Um, the one... One clue, I mean, basically, it's things that it, you know, it, it says how, how we're building life on this planet is like taking what we have and then creating organisms that can eat that stuff and, and poop out the stuff that we want. Right, right. So fast-growing lichens, what does it say? Basically, they're eating salt and they're excreting oxygen, um, trying to get as much oxygen into the environment as possible. Right. Um, and... They literally do. They, there's a Frankenstein's monster uh, reference here. Mm-hmm. It was possible to find the DNA sequences from an organism that carried the desired characteristic and then synthesize these DNA messages and cut and paste them into plasmid rings. After that, cells were washed and suspended in a glycerol with the new plasmids, and the glycerol was suspended between two electrodes and given a sharp, a short, shop, short, sharp, short, sharp shock of about 2,000 volts. And the plasmids on the glycerol shot into the cells and viola. There, zapped to life like Frankenstein's monster was a new organism with new abilities. Fast-growing lichens, radiant, re- radiation-resistant algae, extreme cold fungi, halophilic archaea, eating salt and excreting oxygen, right? So the, I mean, uh, yeah, so we get this kind of like, um, I mean, so one thing we get is that like the the release of life onto the planet, it isn't just like, you know, like we did all this experimentation, you know, like in a lab or in our Mars jars, and we saw which ones were going to work best. Like, what it means to, like, release, you know, like, release, start this process is actually to start a process where, like, um, you know, uh, the different variations on life are going to compete with each other, yeah. right? And, yeah. you know, and some have been built so that, like, if they start replicating yeah. really well, they will suicide, right? They'll stop. Right. They'll die off. Um, other times, so so like we both see what looks like the kind of you know like a natural evolutionary process. In other words, like oh, a whole bunch of different kinds of lichens, etc., have been released, um, and it's going to be like the way that we are supposed to think that evolution works. You know, kind of like um, struggle to like survive best in the environment. The best survivor take you know, like wins or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But also already aspects of the process, because this is actually, it is both a controlled and an uncontrolled process, Mm -hmm. right? So like, you know, it's not purely chance driven, right? There are like fail safes built in into this, right? Um, So, and and then we also get the emphasis on this as, um, you know, the perspective here is like not... um, not sort of like uh, simply an evolutionary one, but one that thinks about ecology, right? Mm-hmm. So we get life adapts to conditions. That's on 205. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, conditions are changed by life. That is one of the definitions of life. Organism and environment change together in a reciprocal arrangement as they are two manifestations mm. of an ecology, two parts of a whole. So here, you know, here we're getting like um, not only an understanding of what it means to talk about ecology, um, but that to think ecologically in this way um, is to actually create a definition of life in which life is not like the organism or even the organism's ability to reproduce itself, mm-hmm. but the organism environment interaction, right? right? You know, it's a relationship, not a not a being or a system. An, an individual. It's a system, right? Yeah. Um, which I uh, like that. I think is a really interesting. That's a super interesting thing to do, and like there is a kind of resonance with the questions that we've already seen about like 
you know, what, what it like, what's human life and what's human and what's history, you know, yeah. like is history like people doing things and then that produces changes, right? Or is history like the action of conditions on human beings? Well, it's both of those things at the same <laughs> time, right? You know, so, uh, but so we both get some an idea that we've seen before, but here in kind of a different key. Um, we see, like, in, in this passage, we're seeing, like, the results of something that uh -huh. they did, right, in the last chapter. Um, but we also see how, like, chance is playing yeah. a role here. And, like, uh, the world is, like, now totally different. We yeah. just saw, you know, like, we just saw the pole and we just saw, like, what the Mars sunset looks like. And we just saw, like, these crazy canyons. And all of a sudden, there's, like, lichen growing all over yeah, it. Yeah, there's right? lichen growing all over it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it make like this discussion, it's making me kind of, because this chapter for me is very weird because, uh, I, I, my experience reading it was I was very, because I'm like not crazy about Michelle. I'm so bored with him. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, so I was really frustrated by it, but then I, but not liking it, got to thinking about it. And like, <laughs> turns out it's the best way, <laughs> more interesting. Right. And like, just making, trying to figure out how these two things, the beginning, um, and, uh, the beginning hangs together or the sort of introduction of it hangs together with the rest of it. And Michelle's attempt to systematize people, mm. um, and figure out why certain people go with other people. Right. Um, maybe we can jump ahead to the Grima, Grima squares. Grima You can explain squares? these to your, the audience. <laughs> I remember doing one of these or like being taught one of these yeah, I was say, once. You had, you had to have learned this at some point, right? At some point, but like never like, you know, I never read a paper or had to create one myself. You didn't have to do like structuralism and like intro to film studies? Uh, well, we did. I mean, I guess there was some, no. Probably not. No. There, there was some. There was some. <laughs> obviously, there's structuralism. I've learned it. I've mastered it today. Obviously, um, I do remember in a uh, the first class I ever took with Tom Gunning. I was going to say Tom Gunning made you loves the uh, loved it and uh, 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 the great Tom Gunning and he it was at he was N a great film scholar great film scholar and he was at NYU and for a year or semester or something and that's where I was and took this semester this uh, seminar called them. Um, Inanimate, inanimate. And so the, I think that the Grima square that he made was like something with robot. It was like, mm -hmm. I don't know if, I can't remember if he made it or if then, then the assignment was to make one of your own. And mine was like sort of robots or, or the one that he presented to us was like, you know, human life, cyborg, pure robot, and then something else like zombie or something like that. That sounds like an awesome class. Oh, it, inanimate, animate was a really great that class. really good. Yeah. It was really cool. Um, but we're not talking just about that. For, just from what you've said. Yeah. I'd like to know more. Uh, I'll try to dig it up and uh, show you the syllabus, such as it was. But um, can you – yeah, let's talk about the um, – what, what, who's Grimus? Well, <laughs> so he was I don't a, know this guy. He was, I think he was a linguist, uh -huh. and I feel like he was like uh, – you know, like French Hungarian or something. Oh, one of those. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm giving I'm giving two nationalities that he might have belonged to. Um, and uh, so, like, you learn this is stuff that you learn when you're learning like semiotic analysis. So, the study of sign systems. I should know this um, since I'm teaching a class on semiotics right now. Uh, I'm gonna listen. <laughs> um, uh, so like, this is like, you know, like French structuralist theory from like the sixties, I guess, basically. But the, the main, the main idea of those squares, which actually I think like the, the novel explains quite well yeah. how they work, but the main idea is like, okay, you, you're trying to think about something like a, the logic of a particular cultural form, right? Um, or yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. It's a way to like analyze like a cultural logic mm -hmm. as opposed to, um, a mathematical logic or something like that. Uh, and you know, we think often like, okay, the way our ideas work is by forming oppositions, right? You know, this and not this, right. uh, masculine feminine is like the classic. And I think actually like, uh, you know, like if you look for like a basic example of a grandma square, I bet you find one yeah. that has masculine versus feminine. Um, 
but the principle is to think that like actually like you know we don't only think in like opposites like that we all we also think about other kinds of differences that mm-hmm. we can lay out here so um here it gets described as um this is on 217 we get we get it described as the concept not x is not the same as anti x right. right so the opposite and the contrary are two different things mm-hmm. um so it's a way of just kind of like laying out the sort of like how is a particular like kind of idea or problem operating in some kind of like cultural document, like in a text. In this case, uh, Michelle uses it to think about like a supposed like distribution of personality types, right. right? And like this is the way that he's sort of like further refining his opposition between like social, antisocial, mm-hmm. those are his sort of basic opposition terms he's working with. Um but what I think is – so, like, you know, uh, I mean, Robinson, you know, did a PhD in English right. and wrote it with Frederick Jameson, who um, – like, Frederick Jameson, who is a literary critic, who's, like, cultural uh, – who's, like, sort of form of analysis draws heavily on using these kind of structuralist tools to think about the way in which um, literary texts in particular – operate. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a kind of like funny, here we see like, um, you know, like, I mean, it is amazing to think that like, this is a chapter that like starts off with like a piece of sort of like evolutionary slash ecological theory, yeah. right? Works its way like half jokingly maybe through some like talk about personality types gives us like a grandma square in the middle and like is showing you like how it's giving you a little exercise and thinking about like how that works just like we've had like diagrams previously about like how you calculate the martian day yeah right yeah so there's a way in which like this is like a i mean i think i like i like this partly because like this is a kind of thinking that like you know i is important to the way that i I think about literature but also because, like, you know, we're not actually – this is not actually, like, a book in which, like, science, as in the hard sciences or the natural sciences, rule all. Like, yeah. This is actually a book in which, like, the human sciences right. or humanities, right, humanistic thinking actually really matters too. And, yeah. and And here I think it's useful because, like, in the past chapter – in the previous chapter we get uh, – the Anne Sachs, Anne versus Sachs argument. And we know that that's actually not really just like two opposed positions mm-hmm. because there's also Arcadi mm. and there's also Nadia, right? And okay, so we're we're seeing like, all right, it can't just be about two, one against another, yeah. right? And here we get a kind of mode of thinking that asks you to think about opposition, but then asks you to think about like how opposition produces other kinds of forms, right? Yeah. And in, in the way in which Michelle uses the Grémont square, like it goes outward from the initial, the initial sort of crossing lines into these like you know into a, like a larger and actually to my mind harder to follow yeah. diagram, right? Right. So like there, like maybe we begin to think at a like. You know, like, okay, so the book is asking us to think beyond or other than or, like, more complexly than just, like, there are two opposing ideas, Mm -hmm. which, if you think about it, is, like, particularly interesting in a book, in a chapter that begins with this, like, sort of account of life and Mm -hmm. the emergence of livingness and then turns to this one, like, slightly assholish man's, Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) despair over his own particular life, right? right? You know, and, like... What does the you know what does our like sadness or our patterns of behavior or you know our sense of melancholy or our love of home like does that have something to do with like our biological livingness? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean maybe it does, but probably not like in a, <laughs> not like in a simple way, right? right? You yeah. know, yeah. He ends up so like in devise, devising this Grima square for the personality types on Mars, he ends up reproducing this medieval the right. galen's <laughs> theory of the humors right, exactly um exactly. which is also kind of is he like just going mad at this point like is or is or you know like it feels like there there the way that it's written it almost does feel like he's kind of a mad scientist yeah, at a yeah, certain right. point and clearly and actually as the chapter goes on he's clearly having some like um, yeah, get, definitely psychotic right, episodes. He's, he's or disor- yeah, he's disordered. He's disordered. Um, right. So that you know, yeah, he says. Uh, 
when considering names to give these combined categories, he ends up combining these categories, he had to laugh. Unbelievable. It was ironic at best to think that he had used the results of a century psychological thinking and some of the latest laboratory research in psychophysiology, not to mention a complicated apparatus from structuralist alchemy, all in order, all in order to reinvent the ancient system of the humors. But there it was. That was what it came down to. For the northern combination, extroverted and stable was clearly what Hippocrates, Galen, Aristotle, Tremegistus, Wundt, and Jung would have called sanguine. And so then there's sanguine, choleric, phlegmatic, melancholic. Yes, they all fit perfectly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, you know, I think there's always like a thing in here about like on the one hand, like people's like forms of scientific knowledge, their particular sort of like scientific worldview like does produce knowledge. And on the other hand, there's also this like tendency to like think and this will be this is like the key to everything right yeah. this is the answer to everything which is kind of you know i think that that's kind of what's happening in that moment yeah, right. right you know like oh but the best result would be really like being able to just synthesize everything that everybody else has ever yeah thought, well right? right after that he goes to what they call the alchemist's quarter right yeah and yeah. and you know goes up to sax and says can you make lead out of gold or gold out of lead and uh sax <laughs> Sax's helmet tilted quizzically. Why no, he said. Those are elements. It would be hard. Let me think about it some. <laughs> so we are literally in, you know, a world in which yeah. alchemy is possible in a way. And then I think shortly after that, somebody kind of traipses in and said, and just they've, they've been exploring the surface of Mars and they've come across a field full of gold nuggets the size of your fist. Right, right. Because we're on a different planet right. where it's just like it doesn't, you know, the old rules just simply do not apply. Um, yeah. And there's that moment I was just thinking like, is he, yeah. I mean, it's kind of intriguing to me to think like, to what extent, like, does he give us like a good or useful account of the characters? Mm -hmm. Because like, it seems to me that like, you know, in terms of like trying to think about like, is he giving a good account of people or or like actually existing persons mm -hmm. i think that like that this kind of like typifying is actually probably like a really bad way to do that <laughs> um but there is a kind of way in which like well also like is this a way to think about the characters in the book like not as people but as like you know collections of like words and events and et cetera, et cetera. yeah but then when he thinks about Anne, i was just thinking this is right after that bit where he talks to um sax right um he thinks uh, phlegmatics and melancholics. Yeah, and yeah. he's like, there are not many mel melancholics among them. And yes, and probably the fate of her brain's structure. Though it did not help, she had been mistreated as a child. She had fallen in love with Mars for the same reason that Michelle hated it, because it was dead. And Anne was in love with death. And like, on the on the one hand, like, that seems like, well, it's like a good line, but also like, to reduce her um, commitment and knowledge and like, passion. Mm-hmm. To, like, a story about, like... Well, first of all, like, to reduce, like, a story that happened to her in her childhood to she was mistreated as a child. Right. And then secondly, to say that, like, what that means is she's in love with death, yeah. right? You know, and that's why she likes Mars. Yeah. Because it is death, right? This is clearly, like, a moment that's way more about Michelle than about yeah. anything else, right? Yeah. Um, one thing that's so... One thing that's really interesting about this chapter, too, is it's kind of structure and its formal qualities mm. because as we have this so he's suffering through this homesickness which he can't name but it's called nostalgia uh it's very like 19th century disease right yeah. um and as he's suffering through this he kind of he he's you know his, his behavior is deteriorating even though he almost has trouble recognizing it but there's moments where he like he's decided to cancel he just cancels appointments with people and this gets people mad at him but um, from paragraph to paragraph in the in the sort of final ten pages of the of the chapter, uh, it there's these time jumps of you know uh, on two twenty four says then it was LS one fifty two and one hundred fifty two degrees had passed in a blur of tele existence and then on the top of the next page then it was LS one ninety and he was a lizard on the top of the Pont du Gard on the narrow rectangular rock plates that covered the actual aqueduct itself. And then the next paragraph, but now it was LS 241, mm. right? So it's this really interesting kind of, um, formal device that, um, Robinson is using 
to skip through a bunch of stuff because where we left off at the end of part three was the original hundred having this debate and then getting word from the UN that it's okay to release the lichen. Then we have this shortest chapter of the, probably the shortest chapter of the book um, where Michel is going through in a haze and he's sort of skipping around time and Mm -hmm. it's, it's an unfamiliar calendar as well right right i mean we don't i mean who knows what it's not january 3rd and then suddenly it's march 4th right it's ls 157 and then it's ls 90 or something like that so like what does that mean to us like as many diagrams as you show me about how the martian calendar works i'm never (laughs) going to get it unless you tell me like how many days have passed right so but it's this great formal device of skipping through an indeterminate amount of time because when we come back in part five there's going to be suddenly a whole lot more people right, on Mars. Right, right. Um, and, uh, and it's a really cool way of making that happen in a way that mirrors, like our sort of confusion mirrors Mich- Michelle's confusion and Robinson's necessity to say like, okay, several months pass and now we're here. It's a really cool, like, formal way to do that. Right, right. And it, it's interesting also because it's like um – because he's not only slipping around in time, he's like yes, sliding but, through time. He's also like sliding through space too, right? And subjectivity. Like suddenly he was a lizard. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and right, he imagines himself as these as they're all reptiles, right? Like there's a snake at some point, yeah, I a think lizard, so. or maybe he's just a lizard the whole time. Uh, yeah, but that's an interesting because if you think like um, you know in in science fiction, like there's no reason why such moves can't be made, right? right? I mean, like, in this style of science fiction, like, we know that this has to do with something that's going on in his mental life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but there's also a way in which this kind of, like, mo- movement around in space and time and, and like, you know, sliding through locations in the way that he's sliding through locations itself has a kind of science fictional element to mm-hmm. it, too. And And then when you think about it, like, I mean, you know, they're on Mars. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just that he's, like, not at home in right. his, like, beautiful Mediterranean home, you know, where it turns out that, like, you know, all of his, like, lovers have left him because he's never present there either, apparently. <laughs> um, well, he's it, been dreaming of Mars his entire life. Because he's been dreaming of Mars And now when he's there, life. he hates being, or he wants right. to go home. Anyway. This, it, it reminds me, like, this is not, like, I think it's not doing the same thing as this, but it... I was thinking in this chapter about um, in Solaris in the in Tarkovsky's film mm-hmm. of Solaris that like um, well they're on the ship um, you know one of the things that's ha- one of the things that's happening are these kind of like intensive like flashbacks to the past that then actually like take material yeah. like, take material form. Um, but like one of the images from the the guy, the guy who's like the primary person um, is back to like the birch forest around mm. like the dacha or wherever you know that you see early on, right? And so you just like you you get these like cuts back to like just like the moving leaves, like these like super beautiful like Tarkovsky mm-hmm. things, right? And then back to the ship, you know, like the the kind of like humming stillness of the ship. Um, and there's there's a, like a little something of that here too because that's also like that movie is also about like nostalgia yeah. or what it means to like be in a place and wish you were in another place. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting that when Michelle thinks about melancholia, he thinks about it as having lost, yeah, lost your past. Even though melancholia is usually, I think, thought of as something more like an excessive attachment. I think to this, a, yeah, to a, to a loss, right? You know, I think this chapter really. So I'm before. So we're we're kind of. I mean, it's such a short chapter, so we 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 don't have that much more to talk about in it. Uh, and I want to. I mean, <laughs> no, in some ways, there's you know, there's significant. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, well, at the very end, it's yeah. and I want to like set that up a little bit by going back to page two eleven because mm. that's the first mention of the word veriditas. Oh right, right. And so there's a way in which this chapter. I'm going to sort of speculate here can be read very, I mean, it's not only, he's the only Frenchman on Mars, right? So there's a very... (laughs) That's what we should have called this podcast. This episode is called (laughs) The Only Frenchman on Mars. So there's a way in which this whole chapter is really inflected through a very European tradition. Yeah, yeah, right. And maybe even, I don't know, I don't think Catholicism really comes up here, but it's kind of a European medievalism going on with the kind of idea of the humors. 
Um, and mm -hmm. the, I think that Tarkovsky is right on in that point because he, he's very much indebted to a kind of pre-modern way of thinking in a certain right, way, right? right. Or, or gesturing back to the past. And, and that um, somehow being on Mars forces people to rethink a lot of what has passed for human knowledge mm -hmm. or modernity mm -hmm. and to adopt terms and ideas that we thought were long superseded by the scientific method. Right. Right. right? And so, um, because, uh, you know, alchemy would be another one. Yeah. Right. Can you turn lead into gold? Well, it turns out maybe we could because it's hard, but let's give it a <laughs> shot. Right. Why not? We're right, already right. on freaking Mars. Right. So, um, I don't know if this is the right, sort of chapter to or a paragraph to start with but he is visiting the the lichen farm uh it's on page 211 um he's complaining about how cold it is right oh and there's also these, these pyramids of salt yeah yeah right so there's this other like whole other dimension of like they've built pyramids and at one point they say it's the you know the a, a primal human create shape or whatever the yeah. pyramid right yep. and they've they've recreated that and there's pyramids of salt so bottom of 10 let's just 210 let's just say that i guess uh michelle let's go for a walk he said who's he with he's with maya maya let's go for a walk he said standard part of therapy hour they crossed the atrium and went to the kitchens so michelle could eat a breakfast which he forgot even as he swallowed he should call eating for we should call eating forgetting he thought as they walked around the hall to the locks they put on suits Maya entering a change room to get her unders on. Her unders. <laughs> it's gross. Yes, it is kind of gross. Then checked them and went in the lock <laughs> and depressurized it and then opened it, opened the bigger, big outer door and stepped outside. Uh, the diamond chill. For a while, they stayed on the sidewalk circling underhill, taking a tour of the dump and its great salt pyramids. Do you think they'll ever find a use for all this salt? He said, Sachs is still working on it. From time to time, Maya went on talking about John and Frank. Michelle asked the questions that a shrink program would have asked. Maya answered in the way a Maya program would have answered. Their voices right in each other's ears, the intimacy of the intercom. They came to the lichen farm, and Michelle stopped to gaze over the trays to soak in their intense living color, black snow algae, and then thick mats of O2 lichen, in which the algae symbiote was a blue-green strain that Vlad had just had just gotten to grow alone, red lichen, which seemed not to be doing well, superfluous in any case, yellow lichen, olive lichen, a lichen that looked exactly like battleship paint, flaky white and lime-green lichen, mm -hmm. living green. It pulsed in the eye a rich and improbable desert flower. He had heard Hiroko, looking down at such a growth, say, "'This is Veriditas.'" which was Latin for greening power. The word had been coined by a Christian mystic of the Middle Ages, a woman named Hildegard. Veriditas, now adapting to conditions here and spreading slowly over the lowlands of the northern hemisphere. In the southern summers, it did even better. One day it had reached 285 degrees Kelvin, a record high by 12 degrees. The world was changing, Maya remarked as they walked, up the, walked by the flats. Yes, Michelle said and could help not help but adding only 300 years before we reach livable temperatures. Um, Veriditas. Yeah. Veriditas. Right? Life. There, Life in its green form. There are these weird, you know, terms that have to be resurrected from the past, but then also these terms, this other term that we never talked about, um, what is it, shigata, what is the one that it says we have no choice, basically? Yeah. It's a yeah. Japanese formulation that right. becomes kind of their, their motto. Right. It's um, one of Hiroko's kind of uh, repeated... Mantras. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Shikata Ganai. Um, so, then, so then, you know, just in terms of trying to make sense of the weird topography of this chapter, that section seems really necessary for understanding what happens at the end. Right. Or getting right. a clue as to both, um, both Michelle's mind state and then what? And then what? The experience of the the uncanny experience right, of the very right, end of right, the chapter right. is. Well, and it's interesting to think that like we have this sort of because um, it has kind of come up before, and I guess this is another way in which like yeah, this is another reason that this makes me think of Tarkovsky is because like here we get this kind of um, 
you know, when Arkady talks about making things beautiful, there's some sense of that as spiritual, but I don't think that that's exactly like the right description. It's more like, you know, this is like, this is a human capacity and like human pleasure is important or whatever. But here we begin to get the idea of like, um, uh, you know, ideas about something like mysticism that, like, place specificity is closely linked to, um, uh, you know, the kind of, like, ineffable stuff we can't describe that we refer to as, like, spirituality, that thinking about life and livingness, like, can't quite get contained in in, in even these, like, amazingly good, like, scientific descriptions mm-hmm. from—and can't— quite get contained even by like the possibility of like extremely detailed gene editing Mm -hmm. that you know that there is a way in which like thinking about what is life or what is livingness like slides in another direction too to the you know to this kind of like vitalist yeah uh livingness that goes everywhere Mm -hmm. you know i mean so it's kind of like you know here we get the idea of like that doesn't seem to exactly be, like, why Sachs thinks we should terraform, right? But, like, in the sort of the perspective that we're coming to associate with Hiroko, mm-hmm. there's an interest, like, in life itself, mm-hmm. right? Just, like, um, in, like, it's, you know, it's greenness, right? Yeah. Um, right? <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, it's so – she's so – uh, enigmatic as a character and but like what yeah what life can be what count what would what would ever count as life or right. what are the limits that would count as life right um are really things that she's deeply interested in right right um and i think her like um that that enigmatic quality of her which i think is like a really risky thing since she's japanese so we get this kind of like constant risking of this i mean which i think comes from the perspective of the other characters mm-hmm. like She's this like youthful, beautiful. She's young. She's, she's the youngest she's young, person on Mars. Beautiful Japanese genius. So she must be inscrutable in right. some kind of way, right? They think that about her, um, and she also like turns out to be like power, not just like a scientific genius, but extremely charismatic, right? Too probably right? the most charismatic yes. person. And, right, exactly. Like because you know. and and for that reason, yeah. So let's we're we're almost to an hour. So, okay, so let's get to the end. And why don't do you want to take it or I mean what happens basically? Well, uh, so we've so we've been with like Michel as he's been just like slipping around in this weird kind of state that he's in, right? Which is like, you know, not Martian time slip, it's like human he's having human time slip problems. Um and then he is uh he gets a uh a, a knock on his door, is that what well, happens? So he's having a real break. Like time passed, the Michelle program walked around. It's on two twenty six. A hollow persona empty inside, only some tiny homunculus of the cerebellum left to teleop- teleoperate the thing. The night of the second day of LS two sixty six, he went to bed, blah blah blah. Uh he could remember almost nothing of the previous few weeks, or maybe it was longer than that. He was not sure. He began to weep. His door clicked. It swung open, and a narrow wedge of light, of hall light, shone in, unblocked. No one there. Hello, he said, working to keep the tears out of his voice. Who is it? The reply came right in his ear, as if from a helmet intercom. Come with me, a man's voice said. Michelle jerked back and jumped, bumped into the wall. He stared up at a black silhouetted figure. We need your help, the figure whispered. A hand gripped his arm as he pressed back into the wall. And you need ours. A suggestion of a smile in, in the voice, which Michelle did not recognize. Fear thrust him into a new world. Suddenly he could see much better, as if the touch of his visitor had sprung his pupils open like camera apertures. Ooh, a cinema reference. Mm-hmm. Um, a thin, dark-skinned man, a stranger. Astonishment launched through, his, launched through his fear, and he got up and moved through the dark light with a dreamlike precision stepping into slippers and then at the stranger's urging, following him out into the hallway, feeling the lightness of Martian G for the first time in years. So he's feeling like very defamiliarized in his own body. Right, right. And they've been on Mars for years now, for, you know, feeling the, feeling the Martian G for the first time in years, like really feeling, having feel, right. feeling it. Right, And this is a stranger. Right. And so at first he thinks, okay, so this is one of the people who have, one of the new people who have just arrived and right. he's come here uh, but the man says to him, I'm the stowaway. I'm the stowaway. Right. So I guess, you know, we've, I mean, we've seen him before. Yeah. We've seen him like Maya saw him on the ship. Right. The stowaway. Um, Nadia, I think has an 
some glimpse. There's a of moment him. of Nadia when they're they're first landing on Mars, and there's all these containers around, and they're going through the containers and opening them up and seeing what's inside. And she comes to a container that's already been opened, or right. the lights are on in it, and she's like, "Huh, that's weird." But she just she's so excited that she doesn't really notice. But clearly, this is where the stowaway right. has Was. stowed away. Right. Um, and it's also something subtle. Like, this character becomes immensely important for the novels. He's kind of one of my favorite. He's definitely one of my favorite characters. But um, his race, ethnicity, and origin escaped me for probably until the middle of, like, Green Mars when mm. it's finally, re- like, we get a real investigation of this character. Right, right. So I didn't know what he looked like or who he was, but... Um, that we this is the first real physical description we get of him. His book, his companion had short black dread, dreadlocks, which made his head appear spiked. He was short, thin, narrow, thin, narrow faced. A stranger, no doubt about it. Um, uh, I'm the stowaway, um, and so he takes him to to the farm. To the farm, and. They were heading to the farm lock. We need helmets out there, Michelle whispered, balking. Not tonight, the man opened the locked door, and no air rushed in, even even though it was open on the other side. They went in and walked between the black rows of packed foliage, and the air was sweet. Hiroko will be angry, Michelle thought. Um... And, and then, then it's he a, sees children. It's a very hallucinogenic... Naked girls, naked little girls. It's a hallucinogenic, really strange sequence of events where yeah he's walking through this sylvan farm through the farm with no helmet on naked children naked children running around laughing um he sees the whole farm team is there two naked little girls walking down the lane toward him black haired dark skinned about three years old they have oriental eyes i'm sure that's um fine um and then the whole farm team is there and they're all naked Sitting around in a circle, um, except for Hiroko. Um, and then there's this um, catechism they that chant. she performs. And the, yeah, this is a this is a good part to go back to the uh, uh, vir- viriditas. Um, they were celebrating the the Areophany, mm-hmm. a ceremony they had created together under Hiroko's guidance and inspiration. It was a kind of landscape religion, a consciousness of Mars as a physical space suffused with Kami, which was the spiritual energy or power that rested in the land itself. Kami was manifested most obviously in certain extraordinary objects in the landscape, stone pillars, isolated ejecta, sheer cliffs, oddly smooth crater interiors, the broad circular peaks of the great volcanoes. These intensified expressions of Mars's Kami had a Terran analog within the colonists themselves, the power that Hiroko called Veriditas, that greening fructiparous power within which knows that the wild world itself is holy, kami, veriditas. It was the combination of these sacred powers that would allow humans to exist here in a meaningful way. So we get here, like, you know, we're getting this kind of, like, you know, uh, crossing earth cultures version of what it means to, like, of what being alive means. Like, and here the veriditas is not, like, just the, that the lichens themselves green, but the human power to like make green life. What's also, I mean, she starts out this ceremony, like walking through uh, and she hands everybody dirt. Right. And she says, this is our body. Right. So it's just, it's Martian dirt. It's lifeless dead dirt, but it still has the quality of, of life in it, or it's being infused with, you know, the Kami is being infused with Veritas. This like, this, you know, creation of basically a new religion making, and, and, and a new world, making and, a, making right. a new, making a new thing. I mean, I think that like the dirt eating is like they eat a, the dirt. some like in some farming cultures, like that's mm. like a practice, right? Mm-hmm. Because your dirt is like, you know, whatever, everything comes out of the dirt and goes back to the dirt. dirt so is you life. eat like a little bit of the dirt as, as part of that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then they have an orgy. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> Which uh, pretty cool. He was a phoenix. Pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> he was a phoenix. Hiroko herself pressed against him, and he rose in the center mm-hmm. of the fire, ready for rebirth. 
And she says, <laughs> Hiroko says, this is your initiation into the Erophony, the celebration of the body of Mars. Welcome to it. We worship this world. We intend to make a place for ourselves here, a place that is beautiful in a new Martian way, a way never seen on Earth. We've built a hidden refuge in the South, and now we are leaving for it. We know you. We love you. Which is, you know, an interesting thing to say to the group psychiatrist. <laughs> we know we can use your help. We know you can use our help. We want to build just what you are yearning for, just what you've been missing here, but in all new forms, for we can never go back. I mean, I think that, like, it's such a, I mean, for all of the things that are, like, totally wild about the end of this chapter, and it's, like, hard to know, like, you know. If it's like, really happening. Yeah, exactly. Is this, like, Michelle's fantasy or whatever? But the idea, you know, like, um, that we want to build what you're longing for, but it's going to be in a new form. Like, yeah. what does it mean that, like, you're longing for something for, like, your past or what you've left or what you've lost could be fulfilled by something that you've never seen before and that you would know how to make it? I mean, I yeah. think that's, like, yeah, that's, like, an amazing well, idea. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, you stopped right. So, but in all new forms, for we can never go back. We must go forward. We must find our own way. We start tonight. We want you to come with us. Michelle says, I'll come. This idea of, yeah, and this is, like, a... Um, a key idea for certain. I was just at this uh, Andreas Hoysen's, Hoysen oh, uh, yeah. lecture last night uh, about uh, Siegfried Krakauer, the um, Frankfurt School, um, the fifth Beatle of the Frankfurt School, as I like to call him. <laughs> and uh, um, <laughs> you know, one of his major ideas um, that he probably shared with you know to Benjamin, and maybe to a certain extent probably not Adorno, but that to overcome the ills of modernity, you really have to fully modernize. You have to go through modernity. You can, you have to take it all the way to the end. You right. can't no half measures basically. Um, uh, and, and that's sort of what's going on here too. We, you know, we have to go all the way um, to create something new. There's no going back. We, maybe there's some stuff in the past that we can salvage and make our own, but it can't re- maintain – it can't uh, retain the same form as it had right, then. Right, We have to give it new form. Right. We have I to mean, give things new meaning. I think that it was making me think of uh, another uh, Frankfurt schooler, <laughs> another, but probably, like, not, not at all in the band, Ernst Bloch, mm-hmm. right, who – Yeah. Right, you know, like, that part of what, you know, Bloch thinks about, like – dream like wish fulfillment and like dreams and fantasies you know and longing like longing for path for the past um as actually apprehensions of the possibility of radical difference mm-hmm. you know uh, and so that the possibility of a thing that is an entirely new way mm-hmm. of living that we can't know about in advance but that like even in our sort of like um you know, like the reverie that you have when you imagine like buying something, like our most, our like worst, like capitalist moments of reverie mm-hmm. in there, there is a kind of, mm-hmm. um, there is something that lets you apprehend like what it, what it is to like hope for something that's different. The right? possibility, yeah, the possibilities that this, I mean, the possibilities that sort of capitalism holds out are real possibilities. It just sort of like stops short of actually. Um, creating them or whatever. Right. Well, and, and if you think that like that, the lot, you know, like if you think that what your fulfillment is yeah. exists within the world right. as it's given, right. You know, like to get beyond like the logic of what capital can give you is a real beyond. Mm-hmm. It's like a leap into. Mm-hmm. Um, so that idea of like, you know, what does it take to go towards something that would be new, you mm-hmm. know, and here we get it in this, the form of this like spiritual practice. That's also a scientific practice right you know that's that's about like a kind of making world making yeah um but also like it's not arcadi who like actually like yeah. runs the first breakaway community it's not arcadi who's like gonna make utopia here. yeah like the first utopians are this like crazy collection of uh farmers who want to like eat the dirt of mars and read hildegard von bingen and like yeah. you know <laughs> what what was let's see because they is that there is a moment here right at the end right before the just at the end where they do explain right that there is a we've set up some stuff and we're yeah. we're, we're taking off right right they have a um, place to go did you read that already 
or no? I don't. We, didn't. we don't have to read it, but it's basically like they they are gonna they're gonna break off and go to like the South Pole, basically. And they've they've already set up some settlements and stuff. They've got it ready to go, and they're just gonna they're just gonna disappear um, without telling anybody. So, like, the last chapter ends with, like, somebody, Sachs, decided that it was, like, time to just go ahead and start doing the terraforming without discussion. Yeah. This chapter ends with somebody or some group of people, Hiroko and her uh, team, decide that it's not going to – it's not time to have, like, a conversation about, like, how we should build. We're going. Yeah. We have built a hidden refuge in the south, and we know we are – and now we are leaving for it. So, um, yeah, and it's, like, even more extreme than what Sachs has done basically right because right. it's not just that they've let lichen out and in, in these like windmills or whatever it's kind of almost from Hiroko's point of view it's probably like a half-assed measure it's like if you're going to do something do it all the way right and we've already established a rogue settlement that no one even knows right. about right um well and Sachs is like I mean, the the theory of terraforming is make Mars into Earth or yeah, Earth-like, right. right? And her theory is make Mars into itself, right. this new thing yeah. that is coming into being, exactly. right? You yeah. know, and Anne says Mars is ancient, you know, Mars is so much older, you know, we don't, like, mm-hmm. we have to live in the relationship to that. And then Hiroko has this idea of, like, this, like... So that, you know, then then the solution to Michelle's homesickness, he's, you know, he's homesick for the south of France. Right. But the solution to homesickness is, like, the un, the unknown, is, like, the birth of Mars, yeah. you know. Yeah, not to go back to the home, but to create the home. Yeah, um, yeah. Brand new, you know. Um, cool. Yeah, it's an awesome chapter. It is an awesome chapter. <laughs> it's wild, wild stuff. Weird, wild, wild stuff. Some wild stuff happened. Wild stuff happened it's here. It's just some verid- veriditas. Some veriditas. Wildness. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. So next week we might have a special episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, prob- maybe, probably. Maybe. We'll see. We'll keep you guessing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we certainly know what's yes, going on. Yes, exactly. We've planned the um, whole thing in advance. But... Um, yeah. Is that it? Yeah, that was great. All right. Until then. Okay. Until uh, next time. This has been Marooned on Mars. And uh, keep on looking at the stars. Reaching. Oh, rhymes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Bye. Bye.